Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There is perhaps no more resonant word for most of us than the word home. The word home conjures up all sorts of images for us, of memories and places where we were beloved, places where we felt safe, places where we have a store of happy memories, places that many of us would long to go back to but know that we cannot return. And this longing for home has invaded every aspect of our culture. Sometime after Halloween, you'll start hearing on the radio, there's no place like home for the holidays, and it will continue on through Christmas. And who could ever forget that iconic scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy, played by Judy Garland, chants in the most serious of voices, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, as she tries to click her ruby slippers in the right way to be taken back to those she loves. There is indeed no place like home, even when it's like what Robert Frost said in Death of the Hired Man, home is the place where when you go, they have to take you in. But home is a place of joy for most of us, a place where we have happy memories. And Mark Twain, in a moment of not being funny but being serious, put it this way, to us our home was not unsentient matter. It had a heart and a soul and eyes to see us with and approvals and solicitudes and deep sympathies. It was of us and we were in its confidence and lived in its grace and in the peace of its benediction. And most of us can remember a time of being at home that was a time of deep joy. And if, even if it wasn't our home, perhaps a place of friends or grandparents, there was a place that felt the place that we belonged, that we were made for, where we were at peace. And I think this longing for home is part of the reason that J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings is still so very popular years after its publication. Because in that book and in the movies, the concept of home matters deeply. You see the hobbits who love the Shire and are longing for it. The elves who love Rivendell and Lothlorien are longing for it. And all of what goes on in that book and story is because of these are places that they feel that they belong, places that they know, places that are meaningful where they're surrounded by those they love, a place where they can be their true selves, and as Tolkien says, a place where everything sad will come untrue. And this idea of longing for homes is getting more and more important in our cultural moment. Some of you might have noticed last week that there was a bulletin from the Surgeon General of the United States, not about COVID, but declaring a public health emergency. And the public health emergency was because of the issue of loneliness. We are just a step behind the UK, which a few years ago appointed a cabinet-level minister of loneliness. And in the Surgeon General's warning, he said that there is a decline across society and social connection, but especially among young people in their teens and 20s. 
and that in the survey data, over 50% of U.S. adults reported dealing with extreme loneliness. And the data shows that this loneliness causes billions of dollars in health cost, and that loneliness is more deadly than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. We are made to be connected. And when we isolate and are alone, things go the wrong way. So this concept of home and longing for home is so important, and you see it all through the scriptures. And the gospel lesson today talks to us about how that longing can be fulfilled. But a little bit of context first. When we read this gospel from John 14, which I would commend to you to follow along in your leaflet, we often miss where this gospel actually falls. Because as you will know, we are now in the season of Easter. We have moved long past Good Friday and all of the events of Holy Week. But this gospel lesson actually takes us back to Maundy Thursday, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And right before today's passage is the passage where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, institutes the sacrament of the Last Supper. And in that section right before this, it says that Jesus is troubled in his spirit not just because he knows that he is going to be crucified the next day, but he says out loud that one of those at the table with him will betray him. And then Judas goes out, and the disciples are confused and troubled, and Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot now come. And Peter is distraught and says, Lord, I will follow you anywhere. I will die for you. And then Jesus says to him, Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And the very next line is, let not your hearts be troubled. So that is where this passage falls, and the context is vital for understanding this. Remember, when the gospel was originally written down, there were no chapter and verse marks. This is all part of one story. So Jesus, as he addresses this troubled heart in himself and in the disciples focuses on three things that we will focus on this morning. First is the idea of home and his father's house. Second is that great I am statement. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And thirdly, the whole idea of the importance of knowing Jesus. Jesus uses the phrase, know me or know him, seven times just in a couple of verses there. He wants us to pay attention. So first, the idea of home and his father's house. Jesus has said, do not let your hearts be troubled. And one of the remarkable things about this is that Jesus himself was the one who was about to be most deeply troubled, the one who was about to be put to death the one who was being betrayed by his closest friends, and yet he is the one who is seeking to encourage his disciples and to talk to them about their forever home. And Jesus describes his followers as those that God has given to him, and that includes us. We belong to Jesus. We are his children if we know him. And one of the beautiful things in this passage is Jesus tells us 
that he is going to prepare a home for us. And that home is not just any place. It's not a trailer park or anything like that. It is literally my father's house. And my father's house for Jesus, in the Old Testament, that is a word that can refer to the temple, but it is the place where God himself dwells. That that is the place that Jesus is going to prepare to welcome us in. It is home. It is the ultimate home for Christians. It is the place where we will be loved for our own sakes, not for our gifts or possessions, place where we will be loved to the end, where we will not be forgotten, where we will be always welcome. As J.C. Ryle says, in this life, we as believers are in a strange land, and it is like we have been sent off to school, but in the life to come, we will get out and we will get to come home to the place that we were created for. Secondly, Jesus makes clear that heaven is a place of permanent, solid, eternal dwellings, that this is not some airy, fairy future on some sort of thin cloud with a harp up there, but it is a real substantial place where God dwells. And while we are here in this body, we are in tents and temporary dwellings and have many changes that we go through, but in heaven, we will be settled at last and we will be with Jesus. And furthermore, this passage says something truly remarkable, that Jesus will not be content to dwell in his Father's house without us, that he longs for us to be there with him. He says that where I am, you may be also. It is certain that in the Father's house, we shall see Christ. And in this world and in our culture where so many of us move from place to place and job to job and city to city and even country to country, this idea of at last coming home to that place that is beautiful, where we are surrounded by our forever family of those who know and love Jesus Christ, and Jesus is at the heart of that family, that is the vision that Jesus is painting for us. But it's even more than that because Jesus says that part of the reason he is going is to prepare a place for us. And this language is the same language that if you were getting ready for guests to come to your home that you're going to prepare the guest room and you're going to the grocery store and setting the table and polishing the silver and all of that, Jesus is preparing this place for us. He is getting it ready, tidying it up as it were to welcome his people in. And when we get there, we will not be in a strange land where we can't figure out what to do, but instead, we will find that we have been thought of, prepared for, and known before we get there, that Jesus has carried our name into the Holy of Holies in that place and made it ready to receive us. And then, as if that were not enough, that he's going to prepare this place for us, he says, the reason that you know the way is not only that I have told you, but I myself will come and I will take you there with me. We've heard that so many times that we forget the import and the compassion and comfort and glory of those words that Jesus himself will lead us into our Father's house, our forever home. 
to unite all of our family of believers in one united, joyous family, never to be parted again. And then Jesus moves on to the second thing to instruct us more about getting to that beautiful home that he prepares for us. And that is that great I am statement. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And note that Jesus does not say that he is the pointer to the way, or that he is the pointer to the truth, or that he is the pointer to the life. What he says is, I am those things. I myself incorporate in my being all of what it means to be the way, to be the truth, to be the life. No prophet or teacher or apostle in any other religion ever used such words as these. These are the language of one who knew that he was God. So let's unpack this a little bit. Christ is the way. He is the way to heaven, the way to peace with God. He is not only the guide and teacher and lawgiver like Moses, but he himself is the door, the ladder, and the road by which and through whom we must draw near to God. He has reopened the way to the tree of life, the way that was blocked back in the book of Genesis in the fall. He has reopened that way that we may go through because of what he did on the cross. Through his blood, we may draw near with boldness into that heavenly home because he is the way. And then again, as J.C. Ryle says, Jesus makes very clear that he is the only way. He takes care to end that statement with no one comes to the Father except through me. Ryle puts it this way, we should mark carefully what an unanswerable argument the sentence supplies against the modern notion, now this was written in the 19th century, the modern notion that it doesn't matter what a man believes, that all religions will lead men to heaven if they are sincere. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. It avails nothing that a man is clever, learned, highly gifted, amiable, charitable, kind-hearted, and zealous about some sort of religion. All this will not save his soul if he does not draw near to God by Christ's atonement and make use of God's own Son as his mediator and Savior. God is so holy that all men are guilty and debtors in his sight. Sin is so sinful that no mortal man can make satisfaction for it. There must be a mediator, a ransom payer, a redeemer between ourselves and God, or else we can never be saved. There is only one door, one bridge, one ladder between heaven and earth, and it is the crucified Son of God. Jesus is the way. He is the embodiment of the way, the only path that leads to the Father and to our home. More than that, though, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the root of all knowledge. He is the true Messiah to whom all revelation points, the truth of which all the Old Testament ceremonies and prophecies were just types and shadows. Jesus is the truth. And I would encourage you sometime, if you have time, to go back and read again John's prologue in the first chapter of the gospel where he talks about this idea of truth. And he says in that prologue 
that the word, the logos, that great truth, that organizing principle of the universe through whom God created everything that is, that that word somehow miraculously, incredibly became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Jesus is that organizing frame of creation and the universe. He is not a truth, but the truth. He is absolute, unchangeable truth. And we live in a culture today that says there are many truths. There's Jeff's truths and Jerry's truth and Suzanne's truth and Joanna's truth and Mac's truth, all these different truths, and they're just all lovely, and isn't that nice? Um, the problem with that is it's not true. Uh, Jesus is the truth, and all truth points to him, and he is the truth on which we can base our lives. He is bedrock truth and reality. And then thirdly, Christ is the life. And when he says he is the life, he means he is the root and fountain of all life that exists in the universe. He is the only giver of everlasting life, and he is the only one who can give us that eternal life that we will have forever in our Father's home, that place of joy. And this is one of those places where the English language fails us a little bit. We've talked about this before. In the New Testament, when we see that word life, we have to ask ourselves a question about the Greek. And in that question, the question is which of two words is it in the Greek? Is it bios, which sounds like biology, which is that natural life that means being alive. The oak tree out there has bios, the cockroach has bios, we have bios when we are alive. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. The Greek word here is zoe. And Zoe, it's not a trendy girl's name. Zoe here means the life that is in God himself, that fountain of life that is forever springing up in the Trinity that exists among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, out of which overflow all of creation has come. And Jesus says in the, John's prologue, what John tells us about Jesus is that in him was life, in him was Zoe, that eternal life, and that life was the light of man. And that is the life that Jesus comes to give to us, to share with us so that we can live forever with him in that eternal home. Jesus himself is that life. I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes this in Mere Christianity. And he says, when he's talking about the Trinity, he says, if you will not think me irreverent, I want to use the metaphor for the Trinity as a kind of dance. And he says that this pattern or this dance of this three-personed life of the Trinity is to be played out in each one of us. Each one of us has got to enter the pattern to take his place in the dance. It's like Miss M's cotillion in dancing school, that you can be sitting on the chairs on the side or you can be out on the dance floor dancing. And what Lewis is saying here is we have to get out of that chair and get out on the dance floor and be caught up in that dance. He says there's no other way to the joy for which we were made. Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, 
You must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, and an eternal home, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prizes which God, if he chose, could just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are in it, you will be drenched. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God in this way, how could he not live forever? Jesus is the one who is that life, and we must enter into him. I love the way Thomas Akempis, the great devotional writer, wrote about this passage. He says this, Jesus says, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, the life for which you must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the unending life. I am the way that is straight, the supreme truth, the life that is true, the blessed, the uncreated life. If you abide in my way, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. My friends, that is what the Lord Jesus has done for us by being the way, the truth, and the life. But that brings us to the third point, that we must know him. We must know him, not know about him. We must know him, be in relationship with him to understand this and come into this. We are not to just know about. Many of you probably got up at the crack of dawn yesterday to watch the coronation of King Charles III, or at least saw clips from it. And one of the remarkable things about that is you see all of these millions of people who are gathered around this event that has to do with this one man. And you see there are thousands and thousands of people in the streets. You might have seen around England, people gathered around large screen TVs in parks around the country. Or you might have seen the thousands and thousands of people on the mall or the mall uh, who were gathered to try to see the wave from Buckingham Palace. You saw the thousands of people filing into Westminster Abbey. And finally, that select few who are within Buckingham Palace the family, and those who are closest. Now, the interesting thing here is that it's all about then that inner circle, whether you know the king. It's not just about being important or knowing about the king. There are many scholars who have written thousands of pages about the history of the British monarchy. There are gossip columnists who have filled up countless pages and killed many trees speculating about Harry and Meghan. There are people who have made it their life's work to know about the royal family. And there's Jeff Miller who can recite the genealogy of every monarch of England. But it is not knowing a great deal about Charles that gets you inside the palace. It is being connected with him relationally or being part of his family. And it was interesting, it was not just the family in there, but close servants who had served the royal family before who were invited in. And the question for us is, do we know Jesus? And Jesus points out when he's talking to Thomas and Philip 
that knowing him is the key thing because when you know Jesus, when you have seen Jesus and heard him, you have seen the Father. And the beauty of that is that knowing him means that it's reflected in relationship and the way we spend our time and our priorities, what fills our thoughts. Jesus wants us to know him. He invites us to know him and to become part of his family, that everlasting home, to know him as the way, the truth, and the life, the one who loves us so much that he is preparing even now a home for us and will one day return to bring us home. It reminds me of that beautiful hymn that we sing sometimes at Christmas because faced with all of this, how can we respond? And that beautiful hymn puts it this way, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. What can I give him, give him my heart? And the great good news is that when we give him our heart on that last great day, we will be able to sing with all our heart the hymn we're going to sing later in this service, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart. There I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God, how great thou art. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that in the midst of your troubled heart on the evening that you gave before you gave your life for us, that you chose to give us these words of comfort about our forever home with you, to remind us that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that in knowing you is joy and life eternal in our Father's house, our true home, in which we rejoice and give you thanks for Jesus' sake. Amen.